The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist to proclaim the good news of Jesus for the joy of all people to the ends of the earth. For more information about our church, our resources, or to support our ministry, please visit steadfastavl.org. Morning, guys. Y'all good? Awesome. Glad to see you. Uh, I will explain this in a moment, but uh, man, glad you're here. Uh, If you're new around here, my name's Brian, and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor, and um, I preach most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time. Glad you're here. Uh, If you want to be known, there's a connect card in your seat, but otherwise, I would say in the seat back there, um, man, just make yourselves at home. I hope that you feel the welcome of Jesus in this place. Uh, I hope that you feel a sense of belonging here, uh, that even already as you've walked through the doors that people have said hello to you and made you feel more comfortable uh, about being in a brand new church. And um, if you give us some time, uh, I think you'll, you'll find that we're, um, we're dysfunctional, as I say often, but we are a family. We love one another deeply, and we're thankful that you are here with us. Um, we're starting a brand new series today called At the Table. So I figured what better visual than a literal table uh, set up like a feast. And we're gonna be talking a lot about that as we get through uh, the, the weeks of this series. Today we'll be in Luke chapter five. So if you have a Bible and I hope that you do, you can turn to Luke chapter five. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are hardback uh, black ones there in the pew rack and it'll be page 809 in the pew Bible. As you're turning there, I got a question for you just to reflect on for a second. Um, what, what are one or two of the best meals that you can remember in your life? Best meals you've ever had. For some of you, it might be uh, you know, an anniversary dinner or maybe even your, your wedding reception. You know, uh, For some of you, it might be uh, a milestone event in your life. Uh, for some of you, it might just be that, that restaurant you've been wanting to go to that you saved up forever to, uh, to go and, and, and splurge and enjoy this great meal. Uh, I wonder what it is for you, but I would say there's probably two components to it. Number one, it's probably not like ramen noodles in your dorm room. Like that, no one, we wanna forget those memories, right? It's not Taco Bell in the drive-thru at 2 a.m. Um, but what you remember probably is the food, how succulent it was, how the quality of the beef, uh, uh, the vintage of the wine, whatever that was, but you probably also remember who you shared that meal with. And it wasn't even so much the food as much as the experience, the conversation, the, the person that you care about that you got to share this beautiful experience with. Um, I can remember several meals uh, even at restaurants in this city that my wife and I have gone to and we've had friends with us and laughed and uh, shared really, really, really good, way too expensive food uh, and just carried on for hours and hours into the evening. And, uh, and what I remember, like the food, like we go to Curate sometimes, some of you know that restaurant, so good. But the memories I have uh, are about those conversations and the laughter and the people that I shared that experience with. Uh, and you probably uh, you know, think the same. Now we're starting this series called At the Table. And what we're doing is we're walking through the episodes in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus shares a meal with people. 
And there are seven of those at least. And uh, one commentator said of the, the gospel of Luke that in Luke, Jesus is either coming from a meal or at a meal or going to a meal. So we know Jesus was a Baptist. <laughs> and meals are not just a theme of the ministry of Jesus. Meals are woven through the entire Bible. In fact, you may know this, but in the Old Testament, God commands seven different feasts of his people to remember him, to revel in him, to glorify him, uh, and, and to enjoy his provision. Now, all living things on this earth need food, need sustenance, right? But God has created humans in such a way that meals actually matter. What I mean by that is food is not just given for our nourishment, but for our enjoyment. And, and now, you can scarf down a burger through the drive-thru on your way to gymnastics, okay? And that's a meal. But for many of us, meals can be full of significance. Uh, there are few things that are more expressive of, of human connection than a meal with one another. That's why we often encourage you to you know, if you meet someone new, invite them out to lunch after this gathering or, you know, my ideal dream. Now, we don't do this, so it's a dream. It's like that we would have a pot of chili or soup or something on the stove and invite people back to our home after service to enjoy that meal with us. One commentator put it like this. Um, someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or well on the way to becoming one. So there's something powerful. There's something significant about sharing meals. Now, in the Advent series, we looked at the reasons, some of the reasons that Jesus gives for why he came. And things like to fulfill the law and the prophets and to seek and save the lost and, and those kinds of things. Uh, in this series, which will take us all the way through the Lenten season, all the way to Easter Sunday, we wanna look at how Jesus came. And there's one verse in Luke chapter seven, which we'll get to uh, next week, actually, where it says that the son of man has come eating and drinking. That's how he came, eating and drinking, feasting with friends, uh, sharing meals with people. And so we're, we're gonna look at these meals and my hope is we'll learn from Jesus through these meals about the kingdom of God, about hospitality, uh, about the gospel and about the way of Jesus uh, as we investigate him eating these meals with different people. So Luke chapter five is where we're going to begin. Um, I will give you a warning up front. I preached on the similar theme, actually the story of the calling of Levi or Matthew. We looked at that in the Advent series. And the reason for that is because your pastor doesn't always have good forethought when planning series. So when I realized that Luke five was the first story, I was like, oh, I just did that like a month ago. But I'll tell you this, looking at Luke's account of it, which is very similar, but not the same, uh, the Lord just brought so many new things to light. And I hope to share those with you this morning. So, <clears throat> um, and let's be honest, half of you weren't here for that message anyway, so. <laughs> Let me, let me read the text. It's short, starts in verse 27 of Luke chapter five, uh, ends in verse 32. Well, let me read it, I'll pray for us, and we will dive in. Luke chapter five, starting in verse 27. After this, he, that's Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. 
And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call the, not to come, not, who, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be your people. We're grateful um, that you loved us first and sent Jesus to live the life that we couldn't, to die the death that we deserve, and to rise again, conquering death and hell for us, that we might not only be forgiven of sin, but welcomed into the family of God as beloved sons and daughters. We thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and leads us to all truth. And Holy Spirit, I pray right now that as I am proclaiming this word, as I'm um, unpacking this section of scripture, that you would aid me in um, rightly dividing the word, that it might encourage and challenge your people, that it might be exactly what some of us need in this season of our lives. That you would illuminate this truth for us, that we might be changed people who see our need for salvation and see our, the great love of Christ for us more and more and more and, and who walk out of here with a deeper affection for you, Lord Jesus. And so do what only you can do. Um, without your spirit, um, this is nothing. And so Holy Spirit, please come. Um, help us to latch on to these words because these are the words of God and we need them. And so we ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus, and everybody said, amen, amen. All right, um, first thing I want you to see here uh, in this very simple passage, I'm calling a gracious invitation. We see this in verses 27 and 28, a gracious invitation. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. Uh, this is wild, okay? Jesus is ministering in the region of Capernaum, which is the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, okay? This is Peter's hometown. And, uh, and Jesus began his public ministry there. He's been healing. He's been casting out demons. He's been proclaiming truth. Uh, and people were getting a little bit uh, obsessed with his miracles, so he kind of stepped away from that region for a little while and ministered throughout the Galilee. But now he's come back. And uh, multiple gospel accounts will show us sort of chronologically that the healing of the paralytic, if you remember that story uh, where Jesus is in a house and it's actually Peter's house, most likely, uh, they're gathered around and nobody can get into the house and they come with the paralytic on a mat and they dig through the roof and lower him down, Mission Impossible style. You remember that? Okay. When I was in Israel, I actually went to that house and I didn't realize this at first because it's right outside the synagogue at Capernaum. They've built a Catholic church on top of Peter's house, um, but it doesn't have a roof. And they have a big glass ceiling or floor in the Catholic church, and you can look down into the house. I didn't realize until I got back that this is probably the same house that the paralytic was let down into. It's pretty wild. So anyway, he just healed this paralytic, forgave his sins, and now word is getting out about Jesus. Word is getting out 
who this, maybe he's the Messiah, maybe he's the one. A lot of talk, right? A lot of controversies happening about Jesus. And now he's walking by the lake, as they would do. And he sees Levi, otherwise known as Matthew, sitting at the tax booth, as he would do to collect the taxes. And he turns and he looks at Levi and he simply says to him, follow me. Now, we looked at this in December, like I said, so I don't, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. But for those of you who, who were not here, I just want to point a couple things out to you. For the first hearers of this gospel account, this would have been shocking that Jesus not only spoke to a tax collector, but called him to follow him. That they would have thought this was a misprint or something. Are you kidding? Jesus spoke to a tax? Jesus called a tax collector because the tax collectors were the worst of the worst. They were not only employed by Rome, who was the occupying governmental force, who was oppressing the people of God, but, but Levi was also a Jew. So he was employed by the occupying force to continue to oppress his people. And uh, to be a tax collector, you had to bid for it. And the highest bidder got the job. But if you said, hey, I think I can extract 5% out of these people, um, then in order for you to make money, you'd have to extract six, seven, eight, 10% so that you could make money on top of Rome getting their money. Does that make sense? Okay, so this system was just full of corruption and greed, which made almost every good tax collector very, very wealthy, okay? Because they were taking their own cut off the top and they were profiting off their own people as the Roman government oppressed them. Now, the Jews didn't take kindly to this, right? So uh, a Jewish tax collector would be disgraced by his family. He would be expelled from the synagogue. He would be considered unclean and they couldn't interact with or have anything to do with tax collectors because they were considered uh, unclean thieves. So Levi, I say all that to say, he's not the kind of guy that an upstanding Jew would even talk to, much less befriend. But the text tells us Jesus was walking by and he saw him. Did you see that? After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Now, you have to know that in Luke's gospel, when, when Jesus sees someone, very often, after you, he says he saw him, it'll say, and he felt compassion. So, for example, if you want to flip over, I'll show you this. Um, Luke chapter 7, just follow me real quick on this rabbit trail. Look at Luke chapter 7, verse 13. This is the widow at Nain. So her son has died. They're having a funeral. And verse 13 of chapter 7 in Luke says, and when the Lord saw her, what does it say? He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he heals the son and, and brings him back to life. So when Jesus sees someone, he's, he's not just observing and like, oh, there's a tax collector. He sees him. He feels something for him. And we don't know what was going on in Matthew's world, Levi's world, but I sort of insinuated back in December that he might've felt like he was stuck, that this career that he pursued wasn't really panning out the way that he thought it would, and, but he was stuck in it and he didn't have any way out. But Jesus saw him. And he says to him, follow me. There is such grace and such power in those two simple words. When Jesus says, follow me, in the gospels, it is synonymous with having faith in Christ. This word is only used of the, of the disciples. 
And so Jesus is looking at this man who regular Jews would have nothing to do with. He was outcast by almost everyone because he was a greedy thief. And Jesus looks at him and says, come on, come follow me. And Levi gets up and the text tells us he leaves everything. Now, this probably doesn't mean that he just went AWOL on the Roman government. I'm pretty sure they'd have a problem with that and he'd end up you know, on a, on a cross or something himself, okay? What this likely means is that Levi, he's, Jesus calls him. He's like, okay, you know what? I'm gonna follow Jesus. And he tied up all the loose ends for his business. He shut it down and then he went after Jesus. He wrapped it all up and here's what he left behind. He left behind whatever sense of power or authority that he clung to as a tax collector because he had some authority from Rome. He could say, I demand that you pay this and they would have to pay it. He left it behind. He left behind any attachment to, to money, to wealth that he had. You know, to be wealthy in this society was very, very rare. And here's a man who's, who's been just raking it in and, and, and some of you have struggled with that attachment to wealth and money and possessions and um, the freedom that it affords you or the security that you think you have in it. And, and in an instant, he is learning to let go of this attachment to wealth. In other words, it, it's a decisive break from his old way of life in order to follow after Jesus, which tells me the Holy Spirit is at work in Levi's life. No one had to tell Levi hey, you got to stop being a tax collector. No one had to tell Levi, hey, um, you got to start paying back money that you stole from people. I know a woman uh, in Mississippi, uh, she lived in a, a same-sex lifestyle for about 35 years of her life and uh, had a partner and um, they actually had adopted a child and then they had a pretty bad breakup. She moved to Mississippi with another woman and they were in a relationship and her sister invited her to church one Easter Sunday. And so she and her partner go to church, okay? And she, she, the, as she tells the story, the moment they walked into the, into the door, no one looked at them like, what are you doing here? No one looked at them cross-eyed. People hugged them, people welcomed them, people embraced them and said, hey, I'm glad you're here. And while they were in the service, um, this woman heard the gospel and she was convicted and she gave her life to Jesus on the spot. She went home and she said, the Holy Spirit told me you have to separate your household. And about a week later, her partner got saved and the Holy Spirit told her the same thing. No one in the church had to tell them, hey, here's the next step. Here's what you gotta do now that you follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit did the work. And they ended up being good friends still, going to the same church, but they separated households and they continued uh, to worship Jesus together. Isn't that beautiful? The Holy no one has to say, okay, here's the rules. The Holy Spirit did it. Somehow Levi knows that following and belonging to Jesus is worth far more than anything that he had in his previous life. And I just want you to know, whatever you brung with you in this room, whatever you've got going on in your life, there is nothing that you will let go of to follow Jesus that you will regret. Nothing. There's not a single thing that you would let go of in order to follow Jesus that you'll look back on and go, I mean, if I had Jesus and that, then I'd be set. It's never gonna happen. Paul himself, we looked at this a few weeks ago in Philippians chapter three. He says, in his religious world, I had everything. I was the best of the best. And guess what? I counted all as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. 
That stuff doesn't matter anymore because I have Jesus and Jesus is everything to me and he can be to you. Follow me is not just a second chance at life. When Jesus says, follow me, it is an invitation to an entirely new life. And that is what is on offer to every single one of us this morning. He is of surpassing worth. Now, you guys with me so far? All right. Um, I want you to see next a generous response. A generous response. This is verses 29 and 30. So Levi's at the tax booth. Jesus looks at him, says, follow me. He comes, he follows after Jesus. And then it says in verse 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? We'll stop there. A generous response. Now, here's one of the challenges when we read the Bible, okay? There are many, but here's one of them. We tend to experience things as we read them. And not only that, we tend to experience them as quickly as we read them. So here in verse 28, leaving everything, he followed him. And then verse 29, and he, and he held a great feast. And we experience that as quick as we just read it. But let's admit, a whole lot of life just happened between verses 28 and 29. Levi's entire world has been turned upside down. And if you remember Paul's conversion, it took him three years in the wilderness before he was ready to do anything. He had to get some stuff straight, straightened out before he came back into ministry. So Levi likely did not just throw a feast for Jesus the next day. As we'll see in Luke 14, when we get there, feasts were a big, big, big ordeal, very time consuming. We actually sent out two invitations. One was more like an RSVP, are you coming? And then the other one was, hey, it's already, come on. Okay, so it took a lot of time to prepare this stuff. But at any rate, after Levi had processed what happened to him, in his joy, he threw a big party. And here, I love this. Think about the, the, the change we've seen, okay? Uh, Levi was a greedy tax collector, but now he's a generous Christian. Instead of using his wealth for himself, He's now using his wealth to bless his friends and to honor Jesus. I wonder what difference the gospel makes in our lives, how it has changed us. See, Levi, all his friends, because remember, he's outcast from his family, he's outcast from the synagogue. The only friends that he's got are people like him, other tax collectors, other quote unquote sinners, right? People who were also outcasts of society. So um, that's his friend group. And now that he's experienced the radical grace of Jesus, he wants his friends to experience the grace of Jesus as well. So he throws this big party. One commentator I read uh, while studying for this um, gave us, gives us some context for these feasts, these meals in the first century. Listen to what he says. He says, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship in the first century. Meal times were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. And so here's Levi who has experienced this amazing turnaround 
because of the grace of Jesus to him. And he says, I have got to throw a party and I've got to invite my friends because I want them all to meet Jesus. I want them all to experience what I've experienced here. And so Luke tells us he throws a great feast, which is Luke's way of saying, hey guys, I want you to know this was a huge party, okay? Like choice cuts of meat, vintage wine, the freshest vegetables and fruits we can find, all of it. I'm I'm gonna pay for all of it and I'm gonna invite everybody over and we're gonna throw down in the name of Jesus. Incredibly costly, also incredibly incredibly biblical. Did you know that? Um, Back in the book of Deuteronomy, I'm gonna read you something here. You don't have to turn there, but I'll, uh, I'll read you from Deuteronomy chapter 14. L- listen to this. So this is a passage about the tithes, right? The offerings, a tithe means a tenth. And so God's people were required to give a tenth of their produce and their income to the Lord. But l- listen to what he says here about the tithe. Um, this is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14. Let me, I'll just read it for you. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose... To make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. He just commanded them to throw a party. And if there's no, if the way is too long for you, and you're not able to carry the tithes to that place, when the Lord God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord God chooses to set his name there, listen to this, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place the Lord chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen and sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. But do not neglect the Levite who's within your towns for he has no portion or inheritance with you. In other words, bless other people with this gift too. Isn't that incredible? It's biblical to party, guys. Okay, don't, don't mishear me. Not the kind of party where you can't remember where you parked your car. We're not, there's no sin happening here, okay? But to feast, to, for those of us who have experienced the radical welcome of Jesus, for us to use our resources to rejoice in our savior and to welcome others in his name is a thoroughly biblical idea. Christians should be the best partiers. That's an amen moment, y'all. Christians should be the best partiers. And what I mean by that is we don't just invite people over and we got like the Dixie cup, you know, plastic silverware and the Walmart veggie tray and we're like, this is good enough, right? No, we, we go ribs, we go prime, we go because we are demonstrating the good gifts of God are a blessing to all people. And we want to extend the radical welcome of Jesus to you. Now, some of you might not like that. Some of you might be grumbling right now about that. And guess who else grumbled? The Pharisees. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. That means they were mumbling under their breath. I can't believe he's doing this. Would you look at the cost of this thing? I bet he spent... 
400 shekels on that lamb he's got on the spit over there. I, can't, I cannot believe this. This is for sinners and tax collectors? What is this guy? Who does he think he is? And what's Jesus doing there anyway? Here's the problem. The Pharisees, they don't get this, they don't get this celebration. Why the big party? Why is this tax collector throwing a big party that he invited Jesus to? He doesn't understand the change that's happened in Levi's own life. And the problem isn't even the party because the Jews understood that the kingdom of God was a feast. They got that. It's right there in Deuteronomy. It's right there in Isaiah. Like they understood that. Their problem was the guest list. Tax collectors. And Luke says others, but then they call them sinners, quote unquote, right? Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, let's, let's admit, the guest list at this party probably even made the disciples a little bit uncomfortable. I think we fail to realize sometimes that the disciples were also faithful Jews, largely, okay? And when Jesus called them, they started following him. He led them into some pretty uncomfortable places. And so here are these brand new disciples at this party with people they're probably not supposed to be hanging out with, at least according to Jewish custom. And now you got the religious elite over here in their ear going, what are you doing? What is going on here? See, um, for the Pharisees, sin was mainly external. And so the easiest way to avoid sin was to avoid sinners. And in fact, the Pharisees, um, they considered the tables in their own homes almost as a stand-in for the altar at the temple. So they followed such strict, they actually in their own homes followed the same purity laws that the priests had to. That was not commanded of the Pharisees, they just did it on their own. We're gonna be so holy, we're gonna be so righteous, we're gonna, we're gonna take the, the, the commandments for the priests and we're gonna obey those commandments even in our own homes. So imagine, it would, the Pharisees would never even consider inviting sinners into their home and defile their little mini temple they got set up. It would never even cross their mind. Unless these sinners changed greatly, they would never even be welcomed into their home. And here we have Jesus, who is spending so much time around tax collectors and other sinners that they accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Now we know Jesus wasn't because he's the perfect holy son of God. He never sinned though he was tempted like we are, but he spent enough time around people. Like how many parties you gotta go to before they accuse you of being a glutton? How many buffet lines do they catch you at before they go, hey, you're, you're overdoing it, man. How many parties do you have to go to before they accuse you of being a drunkard because you're just spending your time with these irreputable people? He was called a friend of sinners, which they meant as an insult. But you know what? I am so glad Jesus is a friend of sinners, aren't you? Because if he wasn't, there'd be no hope for me. As Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I believe it's verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I'm so glad. Now listen, Jesus did not condone sin. 
He went to these parties and his, his attending the party was not an affirmation of these people's sin. You know what he did? He didn't condone sin, but he dignified sinners. He gave them dignity as image bearers of a holy God. He didn't, like the Pharisees, stand outside the party with arms crossed, judging them. He went in and he saw them and he had compassion for them and he loved them. And, you know, we have no record of how many of those former Pharisees, or sorry, tax collectors and sinners at those parties met Jesus and started to follow him just like Levi. But I bet you the number's pretty big. So here's my question for us. Who is welcome at your table? Or maybe a better way to ask it is who is not welcome at your table? Who right now in your mind, you'd go, well, I don't know if I could ever have that kind of person over to my house. They're a Democrat or a Republican or even worse, they're independent. <laughs> we, we can't invite that couple over, they're gay. We, we can't, I don't, I, don't, I don't have anything in common with that person. What would we talk about? I would just feel so uncomfortable. Good. You need to get a little uncomfortable because Jesus takes you into uncomfortable places for the sake of his kingdom. Who's welcome or, or rather who's not welcome at your table? All right, you hanging in? One more section and I'll let you out of here, I guess. As if I have any kind of power over you. <laughs> Love that. All right. Uh, last thing I want you to see here is verses 31 and 32. I'm calling this a glorious reality. A glorious reality. Look at verse 31 again. So the tax collectors are asking, or sorry, the Pharisees are asking the disciples, why do you guys eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. A glorious reality. Um, the Pharisees have a complaint, shocker. And they can see that the disciples are not exactly used to this idea of hanging around tax collectors and other sinners. So if there's ever a time to bail on this Jesus thing, now's it. This is the time, right? And so the Pharisees are essentially looking at uh, the disciples and they're like, what are y'all doing? Get Get out of here, right? But Jesus brilliantly responds to their complaint. It's only those who are sick who need a doctor. Now, here's what he means. Like, okay, in the first century, there weren't exactly like well visits, right? Doctors were more for reactive uh, rather than preventative care. So you got sick, you needed a doctor. If you were well, you didn't need a doctor, right? That's what they existed for. And Jesus says here, I am like a physician, but I've only come for those who are willing to recognize their illness. How many of you know that people can be sick and they're just in denial about it? Um, 
diabetes, heart disease, right? Uh, all kinds of, hey, you, you better be careful. You're headed down this path. Um, and, and we don't do it. We don't do anything about it. We like to think we still have the body of a 20-year-old and we just don't anymore. Jesus has come for those who are willing to recognize their illness. And I love that in this passage, I don't want to minimize sin because sin is grievous. It's cosmic treason against our creator. But sin in, in this context is not just a thing that, that is either punished or forgiven. Sin is described as a sickness that needs to be healed. And I love that. I love the way Jesus describes sin here. It's a sickness that needs to be healed. And only Jesus can bring the healing and the freedom that our souls really need. Are we able, are we willing to admit that we're sick with sin? That, that, that because uh, of our first father, Adam, sin is it's in our bones. It's in our DNA. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And, but it's a sickness that can be healed by Jesus. What's happening here at Levi's party is a collision between two worlds. On the one hand is the world of the Pharisees, which is a world of pride and self-reliance. On the other hand is the world of Jesus, which is a world of radical grace to the undeserving. Like Romans 2 says, Paul says in Romans 2, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Jesus here is calling people to repentance. Repentance simply means turning away from our sin and ourselves and turning to Jesus. Re repenting is always a turning from and a turning to, okay? So it's turning away from sin and self and turning to Jesus. But notice that Repentance is not a prerequisite for God's kindness and love. Did you see that in Romans 2 as I just paraphrased it for us? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. That's hard for some of us to stomach. Repentance is not the prerequisite for God's kindness and love and grace. It's actually God's love and goodness and kindness and grace to us that makes our repentance, A, possible, and B, joy-filled. When you see how much you were loved by the God of the universe, what Jesus actually did for you, you actually want to repent. You want to turn from sin to him because he loves you so much. Here's how it happens. You mean to tell me that the God that I have ignored and rejected and disobeyed my entire life loves me, wants me? You, you mean God loved me so much that he sent Jesus Christ into the world in the flesh for me? You mean Jesus was was tempted in every way that I have temp been tempted, but, but he never sinned. He never gave himself over to sin because I couldn't, that he was my perfect example in this life. You, you mean to tell me that Jesus took at the cross the penalty, the justice of God for all of my stupidity and sin and failure, all the times that I've rejected God and done my own thing. Jesus took all that for me. He paid a debt I couldn't pay. Jesus did that for me. You, you mean to tell me the only thing that I contribute to my salvation is the sin that made it necessary? You, you mean to tell me 
And all I have to do is open my hands and my heart and receive the finished work of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection from me. And that when I receive with empty hands what Christ has done, then all of a sudden a journey of forgiveness and freedom and healing and restoration begins in my life. The best news ever. I mean, let that melt your heart and lead you to repentance. And, and, when, and, and as Luther said, all of life is repentance, right? So it's not like we wake up one morning and we go, hey, I repented, I'm good to go forever. It's that every single morning, our salvation does not change. Once we are saved, we are saved. But every single morning we get up and we go, Lord, forgive me for where I have failed and will fail because we're gonna fail daily. All of life is repentance. All of life is a turning away from self and just back to Jesus. And how glorious it is when he receives us with wide open arms every single time. So listen, I don't know where you find yourself today. Some of you may be like Pharisees who have thought your whole life that the way to be accepted by God is to be good and to avoid sin, therefore avoiding sinners. And you find yourselves outside the feast looking in because you can't bring yourself to admit that you actually need to be saved from anything. And what I would say to you is today's the day of salvation. Today is the day that you let go of your damnable good deeds and receive the finished work of Jesus for you. Maybe some of you are like Levi. You are just stunned Jesus would even look at you, much less call you to follow him. And you're like just so happy that you belong to the kingdom of God. You're like, I, this is a, how did I get in this place? Some of you might be like the disciples. You're following Jesus, but if you're honest, like getting rubbing shoulders with people who aren't quite like you is kind of uncomfortable and you're not really sure how to do it well. But here's the thing, chances are, no matter where you find yourself, there's probably a Levi in your life. And, and what would it look like for you to welcome that Levi to your table? To give him or her dignity as an image bearer of God. To, to show them hospitality. To to offer a meal, to enter into conversation, to learn their story, to learn their background, to learn their hurts and their hangups and, and uh, to share yours with them, right? In the hopes of introducing them. Now, people are not projects, okay? So don't, don't mishear me here. You are giving them dignity as an image bearer of God just by knowing them and having relationship. But there's also a hope that you can introduce them to the only one who can heal the sickness of their soul. You know, there's another feast coming, right? Um, Isaiah prophesies about this feast. I wanna read you this really quickly and we'll wrap it up. Um, Isaiah 25, I'll just read it. He's, he's getting a picture of what will be and he says this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples 
a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine refined well. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Sounds familiar, right? Revelation. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So when I say that we exist to proclaim the good news of Jesus for the joy of all people to the ends of the earth, this right here is what I'm talking about. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus will use you inviting someone to your table to ultimately bring them to his table. I mean, just think about that. There, there is a seat at the eternal feast for that person you've got coming to your dinner table and he wants to use you to get him there. What? That's incredible. All right, so um, here's what I wanna do as we move into our time of response. I got uh, three questions. We'll put them on the screen briefly. And then, um, well, well, let's just do that and then I'll explain what we're doing here. First question is this. You can write them down as they come. Take a picture of the screen, whatever you want to do. First question, how have I responded to the invitation of Jesus? If you were in this room or, or within the sound of my voice, even today, you have heard the invitation of Jesus. He is saying to you right now, follow me. Let go of whatever it is that you're holding on to that, that you think gives you worth and value and identity and come to me. Receive with the empty hands of faith the finished work of Jesus in his perfect life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection, and be saved, be forgiven, be set free, be welcomed into the family of God. That can happen today. Many of you have responded, and, um, and, and you can kind of look back on your life and, and, and see the fruit of how you have responded to this gracious invitation of Jesus. But if you have not responded, I would implore you to do that today. I would love to talk with you and pray with you about that. You can find me after the service. Uh, second question is this. What does extending the welcome of Jesus look like in my life? If I've received the welcome of Jesus, what does it look like for me to extend that welcome? Now, listen, I'm not saying, I know not all of you have the gift of hospitality, okay? Some of you do and you do it well. Not everyone does, but that doesn't mean you can't be hospitable, it doesn't mean you can't be kind to people and share meals with them and, and pursue getting to know them and giving them dignity as image bearers of God and, and, uh, and finding opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with them. What does extending the welcome of Jesus look like in my life? And then finally, who will I pray for and seek to welcome as Jesus has welcomed me. What I'd like, you to, I'd like to ask you for this series, which takes us through Lent all the way to Easter Sunday, if the Lord brings a person to mind, maybe it's multiple people, but a person, if you would commit to regularly praying for that person, that you would at least invite them to a meal, if not to church, that you would intentionally pursue them during this season and, and be that person who can extend the welcome of Jesus to them. But it starts with prayer. It starts with getting on your face, getting on your knees and asking the Lord to do what only he can do in their life. That person that you think is too far gone, 
Levi came to faith, so there's hope for anybody. Would you commit to praying and inviting between now and Easter Sunday, or maybe even beyond that? So here's what we're going to do. Um, we, we follow uh, the command of Jesus and offer communion every single Sunday, but we've been doing it in what I would call self-serve, little stations. Um, this morning, I'm going to welcome up our serve teams. And what's going to happen is, uh, we've done this before here, uh, it's going to be four stations still, but there will be uh, a, a couple of folks at each station. One will be holding the wine and the juice, one will be holding the bread, okay? And you will be welcome to come down. We'll start like we do with the back rows. You will come down each of these four aisles to one of those stations, and those people are going to look you in the eye and they're going to remind you of the gospel. They're going to say, this is the body of Christ, which is broken for you. This is the blood of Christ, which is shed for you. This is a beautiful symbol and a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. And it's also a glorious looking forward to this uh, epic eternal feast that we are going to share with our King one day. And so we're welcome. If you're a follower of Jesus, you'll be welcome down to the tables, um, uh, to, to those stations, and, and just receive that blessing from those people as they speak those words to you. You take the bread, dip into the juice or the wine, whatever your conscience allows, and then you can make your way back to your seats. And so, uh, so those servers, you can just come forward right now and get set up in your stations. Um, we, we celebrate this sacred meal every week as a reminder of this amazing gospel that we're caught up in. Um, so as you come down, again, we'll start with the back rows and make our way forward. Um, as you make your way back to your seats, there are black boxes at each exit. Uh, that's for offerings or connect cards. So if you're new here and you wanna be known, if you have a prayer request, uh, we, we'd love to pray for you. You can drop a card in there um, and, and let us know how to pray. And then of course you can give. So um, we'll do that. And the band's gonna come up and lead us in a couple songs as we make our way on with the day. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond to the Lord. Father, what a gift um, to be the people of God, to be loved by you, to be forgiven of sin, and to be members of your household and called into your kingdom. Lord, let us, let us not let this good news terminate on us, but, but would the good news flow through us so that more and more and more people, the people that we love the most deeply find a seat at your table. Use us in ways that we don't even think are possible to extend that invitation of Jesus to them, to extend that welcome of Jesus to them. Lord, as we respond, not just today, but all throughout this series, as we look at the meals that you shared with all kinds of people, convict us, challenge us, encourage us, comfort us, Help us to see the beauty and the value of sharing a table with other people for your glory and for their good and for ours. And so, Lord, as we respond now, would you be honored and glorified? Would you fill us with joy in your presence? We love you. And we thank you for this time together and ask your blessing in the name of Jesus. And we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.